healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Well, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Nate Murray from Crossover Health. Nate, how are you? I'm doing great, Michael. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Welcome. So here's the game plan. Uh, What we seek to do on this show is challenge status quo purchasing and educate our audience on non-traditional ways to either lower healthcare costs or improve value and the quality of care for their employees. Sound like something you want to help with? Absolutely. This has been a passion of mine for a long time. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and Crossover Health. So our audience has a little bit of context about who they're going to hear from today. And then we'll jump into it. Sound good? Excellent. So Nate Murray is an entrepreneur with a strong passion for healthcare and more than 10 years of experience in the industry. He's an active member in the Health 2.0 movement and has worked for several large healthcare payers and operations and product development, and has experience in partner and consumer marketing, call center operations, and strategic planning. Most recently, Nate led the development of a direct-to-consumer Medicare marketing program, and he is credited with building the largest online Medicare partner network. As Chief Business Development Officer with Crossover Health, Nate works closely with the procurement, finance, and benefits design teams to ensure administrative and financial compliance of the health services implemented. It also helps to develop shared savings programs that align incentives across the partnership and deliver objective improvements along the cost, quality, and experience dimensions. Nate earned his Bachelor of Arts in Economics from the University of Utah and holds a Master of Business Administration degree from Brigham Young University. He lives in Laguna Niguel with his wife and sons and enjoys basketball, surfing, and spending time with his family. All right, Nate, anything uh, anything I missed there? No, you nailed it. Uh, we had a really important baseball game last night. My uh, AAA Dodgers pulled through. My son pitched uh, a couple of innings. I was able to watch it because I'm remote through the little Game Changer app. And I'm telling you, it's like suspenseful even when I'm watching on the app. But but uh, youth sports is a big passion of mine and watching my kids uh, be challenged in that environment is awesome. I love it. My eight-year-old is in baseball right now, and I'm coaching five- and six-year-old uh, girls in softball right now. And it's just, it's a hoot. It's so much fun. I got to show you my playlist for my coach pitch team. We start out with uh, Ozzy Osbourne Crazy Train during our <laughs> warm-up. So I'll be sure to share that with you after the call. Uh, please do. Please do. I love it. All right. So, Nate, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the healthcare delivery you know, side of the business. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. So right out of college, I found my way working for a company called Ingenics. And Ingenics was the early predecessor to all the many Optum arms. And I worked in Salt Lake City. A lot of great minds worked there at the time. And I just kind of threw myself at healthcare. It was this perfect intersection of technology. I feel kind of driven towards serving people. That's just a personal thing of mine. And so I just felt like healthcare was the best, uh, the best opportunity for me. What was interesting was right at the time that transparency was coming out. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek because we're just in the days of hospital transparency being mandated to be publicly addressed on their websites. And I'm talking about like the year 2000, we were developing yeah. stuff at Ingenix where like uh, transparency was supposed to be the thing. And of course, here we are 20 years later where 
now we're still trying we're still trying for transparency we're still trying i had this really naive perspective that like holy cow we got we got hsa cards coming out we got transparency coming out and then google's there i'm like i had this this idea like what do you even need a doctor for you got google you got a credit card that pays for healthcare and you got transparency i mean i'm a smart kid i can figure this stuff out and that works really well until you actually need healthcare, until something goes wrong, until something touches you in the face. And then you realize how important doctors are. And that was such a critical thing for me. When I got married, my wife was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and uh, we didn't have kids. And so all of a sudden she, she was, she played tennis and all of a sudden this condition without effective treatment. And it's, it's one of those conditions where you actually have to be constantly managed by a provider on a good course, especially for somebody that's young. And so I started to observe in our habits that, you know, we had the the insurance we had, and sometimes people think that's healthcare. And then we had our relationship with the doctor. And I observed my wife, we were forced to get pregnant. You know, she's pregnant, eight, nine months pregnant. And we'd get a call from the insurance company on the phone and they would say, hey, we're calling you because you're in the high risk pregnancy program, yada, yada, yada. And I mean, she was nice and she'd probably stay on for 30 seconds. And because she didn't hang up in 29 seconds, she was probably in the highly engaged cohort, right? (laughs) But, you know, 30 seconds is about all she could take. But if Dr. Capo Bianco would call our OB, she in full, you know, uh, term pregnancy was just running to get that phone because she wanted to talk to Dr. Capo. And I realized how powerful uh, the relationship was. And whatever Dr. Capo said to us, we were doing. He spent time with us. We knew he cared about our baby. We knew he cared about us, about her rheumatoid arthritis. And I was like, man, I think if I'm going to solve healthcare and we're going to take a, a patient-centric uh, focus to this, we got to be on the, the, the doctor side of this. They're the ones right at the intersection of everything that's happening. And being on the insurance side, yeah, you've got technology and you've got power and claims and, and money. You just don't have a relationship with the member at the time healthcare decisions are being made. Yeah. And so it really changed my perspective on that. And, uh, you know, it brought me full circle to working with Scott Shreve, who I think you've interviewed in a pot, past podcast about, you know, going direct to the consumer and, and building relationships. And that's essentially what we've done at Crossover. Well, what a, what a great intro and just statement about the fact of one, you know, insurance, health insurance is not healthcare. Right. Right. And, to, and, and too often, I think, you know, people associate with having health insurance as, as, as having good health care. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Having good health insurance has no association with good quality health care. I think we've finally gotten to this point in our industry where benefits consultants and employers are starting to realize it's less about the health insurance and it's more about the quality of healthcare that's being delivered that has an impact on costs. Michael, I'm seeing that right now. I think that all of us think, hey, we've got the best healthcare when we have the biggest PPO, it's the, it's the name brand, PPO network. Then we feel like, hey, we, we should be good. I got the P, I got the good PPO. But then you realize, Michael, like there's a hundred thousand doctors in that PPO, and that doesn't mean anything for the quality no. of care you're gonna get. It's no, I mean, really do you have the good doctor that's gonna take care of you that you trust? And I think that's what we realized in our journey. 
Yeah, I think if anything, it just goes to show that marketing works. You know, the 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 large insurance carriers of the world have done a great job marketing uh, such that people actually think, well, if I have that brand name on the ID card, it means that I have good health care. And yeah. again, nothing could be further from the truth. So let's let's jump into it. I, I want to start with sort of a macro view and get your perspective here. You know, today we're talking about primary care. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that we have uh, somewhat of a primary care crisis in this country. Uh, there's rampant physician burnout, which makes sense given the number of you know hours that they, they have to put in relative to other specialty practices. We're expected to have a shortage of more than 44,000 primary care docs by 2035. There's a lot of reasons for that. You got kids in medical school, not kids, adults in medical school who are looking at, you know, their future and where do I want to go? And they look at the quality of life of a PCP versus, you know, a, a specialty practice where they know their earnings can be higher and their quality of life can be better. Uh, can you blame them? Right. So do you want to expand on this for our audience yeah. about the issues for primary care providers and patients under the current uh, reimbursement models associated with HMOs and PPOs? I absolutely believe that, that we've got a crisis going on that, you know, primary care is the speed bump on the way to the really expensive healthcare industry. You know, we're just racing right over those speed bumps and um, rolling through them and, you know, spending all our money in the hospitals. And, and in those hospitals, you just have a reactive situation. You can't, once you're in the hospital, money is coming out the door. You can't do anything. You're, you're in a reactive situation. But the challenge is, is that our U.S. healthcare system, and I'm not sure where to, to place the blame or if it's all of us and we do not value primary care. Other countries value it. And as a result, to your point, primary care doctors on, on average just aren't compensated that well. And, uh, and so when you're going into medical school and you're you know, taking out loans and, and it's costing you a lot of money to go through that training and become a great trained physician, you, know, you can come out making the, the, the salaries of a primary care doctor, or you can do the extra training and become a specialist and make two or three times as much money. And so, you know, if, if you get into that situation, it's, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to, to step away from the specialty bucket. The challenge is, is that if we want to address the crisis in the country today with uh, a lot of the things we see with lifestyles and, and high cholesterol and the things that actually hurt us and cost us the most money, you have to address it at the primary care level. It's hard to really address a diabetic once they have diabetes, right? Or once they're out of control and they're in, in the hospital, you've got to create the situation where you can address it at the primary care level. The problem is at the primary care level, it has become more transactional and more transactional. And if you become a primary care doctor, you're billing CPT codes, it's really hard. And so the way that you survive as a primary care doctor is you just see more people. And when you see more people, the result is you're actually not solving the problem. And you're just taking a little toll in the healthcare industry and you pass the patient off to the next person and that doctor takes a toll and everybody's taking tolls, but no one's fixing the problem. And that's well, really where let's, let's, let's dive into that for a second though, because okay. I, I, I want, I want our listeners to, to understand the breadth of the problem. And I, and I think that'll, um, you know, lead right into, you know, crossover health and, and what you're trying to solve for, but let's take a patient say Joe Smith, right. Who has whatever chronic condition you want them to have, right. Diabetes, hypertension, let's say they have multiple chronic conditions, right. They're overweight. So in the, in the current model, what happens to Joe Smith? 
he goes in to see his primary care doc and he gets how many minutes with that primary care doc? And then how many times does he get seen? Generally speaking with that primary, a good primary care doc in the community today, you might get 12 minutes. You may get 15 if you're like a super concierge, but more than not, it's, it's going to be less than 10 minutes, right? The experience is not that great because that doctor, because of the system has, you know, a full waiting room and they're trying to get through 30 patients a day. Oh and so- God. That, that patient isn't going to get the care they need to address the cholesterol. If we want to address that cholesterol, we got to understand, if, is that cholesterol something that's, that's from just their genetic makeup or is that cholesterol from lifestyle? And it's usually a combination of both. But we got to address that cholesterol. So usually what happens is like, hey, let's throw pills at the cholesterol problem and that's going to fix some of it but it's not going to address the lifestyle. And so this person's going to continue to have lifestyle issues, diet, exercise, likely their problem is going to get bigger and no one's going to fix that until it becomes a major event. That's the way the system, the transactional system works today. And no one, people just don't get better in that setup. And you said transactional just on that setup, right? 30 patients a day, 10 to 12 minutes. How can you have a relationship with a patient in that setting? I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, it's, it's really hard. And, and I, I think about it. I, I'm just, I try to be reasonable as I think through these things. Right. And so like, I say a lot of things and I always step back and I say, is that, is that reasonable? So I, I think about this, like if I'm talking to somebody, right. And I got 10, 12 minutes, like I got to get to know this person. Right. But it may take like three, four or five minutes, like a little bit of rapport. And then I've got seven, five to seven minutes, like figure out their history, diagnose the problem. And then Tell them how they're going to fix it. I am not a magician, but I don't know how any doctor, even the best ones can do that in 10 minutes. It's really hard. And so when, when you don't know, this is coming from my, my partner, Rich Pacioroni, He's I'm like, Rich, how would you do it? And he's like, when I don't know, the two things that make a, a patient feel good are giving them something. So I give them a referral to somebody else. That's not solving the problem. Or I give them a medication to address the immediate issue. That's not really solving the problem. Those are the tools when you're compressed on time and you've got to do something. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, are, they're doing the best that they can. They're doing the best they can. But again, in a lot of ways, it's just passing the problem on to somebody else. It, exactly. I, I remember a CEO of a health plan was quoted saying, hey, look, I know, five, I know primary care only costs us about 5% of the total uh, healthcare spend, but primary care indicates where the other 95% is going. And basically you got to nail that primary care so it can influence really where the bulk of your costs end up. That's probably a good lead into what you guys do. So, so let's, let's talk about crossover health. So you guys are focused on primary care and you're not the, the only company, you know, in the country that, that is um, focused in this space. So tell us what problems are you guys trying to solve for and, and, and what makes you guys different and unique from other primary care solutions? Let me give you a little bit of our history transitioning into this. So I met uh, Dr. Richard Patrignoni. He was an internist in, uh, uh, in Orange County. Um, and he was just, he was that guy that, that ran a small shop to give closer to the 30 minute visits. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was able to bill. He ran a very lean operation. So he didn't have a lot of overhead so he could give good patient care and, and survive. And then I met uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Scott Shreve, who's a physician entrepreneur, phenomenal guy, talks and writes a ton, fantastic writer and speaker. 
But the three of us got together and we said, we got to change healthcare. We started a small direct primary care practice in Aliso Viejo, California. And we, we just said, hey, look, if we really are going to change healthcare, we can't accept insurance in the fee-for-service model because it's just going to lead us down that transactional path. And so we started this little practice and it is slow going for direct primary care. I mean, of course it, it is. is. Yes. It's the right model, but acquiring patients. And so when we were doing that, Apple issued an RFP. We didn't know what an RFP was, a request for proposal. And we were three people and we got this RFP and it was to do an onsite clinic at Apple's campus. And we were competing against Stanford and, and Palo Alto Medical Foundation, these big employers. And then there's like these three dudes that uh, have this great idea and a super small operation. And long story short, you know, we share with Apple our vision for the member experience and delivering awesome healthcare. And and Apple, uh, a credit to them, they are all about the experience and, and they really believed in our model for delivering better results. And we were fortunate enough to win that and really expand with them in, in many parts of the country. And so what we were able to do is, is preserve our model by not going down the fee-for-service route, but actually redirecting towards large self-funded employers that were willing to pay doctors differently for different results. And so we were accountable for member experience, quality results, for savings results, all of these different pressure points. And we really became a partner to Apple as they thought differently about healthcare. And then from there, we went on to, we're able to win Facebook and apply materials to really innovative companies and Comcast and Microsoft. And, and, and now we've got this great list of clients. And, and, and the last one um, that uh, is out there is Amazon. In fact, I'm in, I'm in Detroit today, la- launching one of the last uh, regions with Amazon as we serve their fulfillment center associates. But our model was really comprehensive. And as we did the primary care, Michael, what we started to see is we started to see needs for mental health and for physical therapy. And we, we really said, look, primary care is not part and partial from the rest of these core foundation foundational services. So we started to integrate mental health. We started to integrate physical medicine, PT, Cairo, health coaching. And so then we started to build this foundation of what we call primary health that really gives this awesome base. Oftentimes um, patients will come in, members will screen them, the doctor will talk to them and sense there's an underlying mental health issue. And we can do a curbside consult, a direct handoff to mental health or to physical medicine. And we can solve those issues at that kind of foundational level with our patients as they come in. So, so, so that's what we've done. And then of course, through this pandemic, Michael, you, you know, our, our uh, friend, Jay Parkinson, you interviewed him a a couple of years ago. Um, We acquired Sherpa, which was one of the first virtual primary care companies in uh, 2019, we were able to integrate them, fortunately, right before the pandemic hit, have since launched a virtual primary care in all 50 states uh, across the country. And so we serve our, our patients through nearsight clinics, through onsite clinics, and through virtual health centers for them to access. In the past, and in some of your presentations, you know, you've, you've mentioned that <clears throat> crossover health can help achieve the triple aim. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah. So, so the triple aim is, is known for quality, experience, and outcome, right? And we really believe these things build on each other. The triple aim is also one of those things that gets tossed out there in healthcare, like, oh, we're triple aim centric and everybody's trying to achieve the triple aim. And, and so I, I think we all smile when we hear the triple aim and maybe there's a little eye roll in there, but I can tell you our specific strategy behind the yeah. triple aim, right? 
it's it's not that you're just going to dive into healthcare with great quality and say, I am going to solve the cost problem just with the quality. Because you may have really good quality, but your experience sucks and it's transactional and no one will come in. So each of these things have to feed each other. And, and the goal behind the AAA, like really what we're trying to do is bring more services into the cheapest access point of healthcare, which is primary care, and make it the biggest so that we can reduce the secondary costs. So the way that we accomplish that through the triple aim is by number one, we have to create an awesome experience. We have to get as many people in as possible in 30, 60 minute visits, 45 minute visits for physical medicine, being comprehensive both for physical access and virtual access. We have to get people in the door. We have to get them to trust us. And uh, I've talked a lot about that this week with our new team out here. You know, one of the most important things is that we want the Amazon associates to know that we're legit, that they can trust us, they can call us, that we're here to solve their problems, that we're not going anywhere. So you build that trust with the member. And then all of a sudden, kind of like I told you before with Dr. Capo Bianco, with our OBGYN, anything he asked us to do, we would do. So now you've got that trust. Now let's go layer on quality. So we use evidence-based guidelines. We use a clinical operating system that, that uh, our chief medical officer set up, Steve, Dr. Stephen Izeji Okoye. And with that, we're able to manage all of our providers in a structure that we know that we're delivering the best clinical care to members that trust us. And if you do those two things well, then on the outcome, you get that cost savings. It's really difficult to say, hey, I'm going to go get these cost savings if you don't have a strategy. But ultimately, the triple aim is to take an approach to accomplish all three of those things simultaneously. And, and one of the things I think that has stood out to me is that in this model to try to achieve the tip, triple aim, it's not just about the primary care physician, right? It is a, a team-based approach to delivering what I would say is more holistic care for the patient which is night and day, like, you know, right now, and if you have a service model, you've got, you know, one primary care physician who may not talk to any of your other doctors or specialists. In your model, you have a behavioral health component, physical therapy, and even a navigation component. So can you talk a little bit more about this, this team approach yeah. to healthcare and how that helps with quality and, and how that helps with taking care of your patients? Thanks for bringing that up. And, and so we operate in integrated care teams. So I am, I'm actually in a, um, a coaching room. We use those for health coaching and, and, uh, and mental health. Just outside this door here is actually a, our, our team room. And our team room is just an open space where doctors, mental health specialists, chiros, PTs, care navigators sit and they discuss patient care, which patients are going where, the navigation, you know, mental health therapist might step out from this room to the next room and say, hey, look, uh, I'm addressing some mental health issues, but there are actually some lifestyle issues we want to address here too with diet and exercise. And so let's get them involved with the doctor and make sure we're getting the right labs. So that's kind of the, 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 the description of it. Let me but, tell but, you. But, but before you jump though, I, I mean, what I heard there is there's, there's health coaches. There's actually somebody who can help somebody with like, all right, we got to figure out how to advise you and coach you on how to eat better or, or what, what type of exercise is possible given your work schedule and your, your, your family, you know, obligations. And so you have people, you know, who are going to take that physician's recommendation that, you know, Joe Smith needs some help in these areas. And so there's somebody on your team 
who's going to reach out to that person and actually help them with like diet and exercise? 100%. And even, even further than that, Michael, you know, I think sometimes we paint these pictures of this idealistic world that like, Hey, I got this integrated care team and like, they can do all these fun things to like really solve healthcare. And then you have to also realize that the patient goes home and maybe the patient can't pay their rent or maybe they can't pay their bills or maybe they don't have food in the fridge or maybe they're in a, in a, a domestic situation that, that where there's abuse or maybe there's substance abuse or transportation issues. And we have to recognize that we need to understand our patients and the social determinants of health that impact their ability to even take actions that we're trying to help them to take that will improve their lives. And so a big part of the care team is understanding the patient's ability to, to take these actions. And, you know, we just this week, I was, I was uh, talking to one of our mental health providers and they said, you know, they, they told me this great story about how they're able to help a patient get into a substance abuse program. We have situations where working with a patient recognizing they can't make their rent. And our care navigator was able to work, reach out to community resources where they were able to find mental assistance programs. And so while oftentimes we, we get so excited about the integrated care team, and if you just follow these steps, you know, you're, you're going to live a better life. And then we have to always remember that like, hey, where are they coming from? What, what are the determinants in their life that prevent them from being successful? But it's absolutely right. And the, and the care navigators on our team are really the glue to make sure that, that we're able to execute on all those things. And, you know, it, it's the, the part of the great side of the pandemic is that it's really made people a lot more comfortable with virtual care. And so that's yeah. made access to us a lot more convenient. And so, you know, people who have transportation issues or, or you know, um, may not be able to get in at a convenient time can still access their same care team um, virtually. And so, again, I think that there is this confluence of factors that are really helping us. I still think we have a long ways to go. I've been really inspired by our medical group led by Stephen Uziaji Okoye and focusing on these social determinants of health that uh, allow us to be more successful in achieving quality and outcomes. So let's go back to that fictitious person that I made up, Joe Smith, who, Joe Smith. you know, who has oh, diabetes. Well. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Who has diabetes and, and maybe, you know, hypertension, maybe a little overweight. And so in the, the current model, he gets to see his physician for, you know, 10 minutes, maybe twice a year and, and nobody really checks in with him. So in, in the crossover health model, how often is he being touched throughout, throughout the year? Yeah. So I, I would imagine pretty regularly. I say that we all think about what, what does it mean to like go to a doctor's office? Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it probably like brings up some emotions of pain of like, ugh, like I have to go to a doctor regularly to get the help that I need. And, you know, you think about the drive, sitting in the waiting room, you know, the unfriendly staff, the little minutes with the, with the doctor, it's, it's a total pain in the butt. What regular means to us is you have a relationship. You come in and you talk to your doctor. And once you actually start to visit with them and build a relationship with them, regular starts to look a lot more messaging based than actual coming in. Um, I think we're all busy and depending on our own personal needs, we may be comfortable totally talking to our doctors. Um, yeah. They know us, they've taken our history. So regular might be messages back and forth. It might be remote monitoring. Um, it might be some really um, less intrusive things in your life. I mean, you know, when we think about like financial advisors or your bank account, like remember how tedious it was to go to the bank? Like you, oh, yeah. you had to check your, you had to keep a tally and, and 
but now, you know, everybody's got the app on the phone. They know they pay their bills. Like it's not so tedious anymore. And, and that's really what crossover is doing with healthcare. We're, we're, we're making those regular check-ins with your doctor, not feel so tedious. Certainly come in for the 60 minute visit, 30 minute visit. But if you got a question and you're at work, just text your doctor and they'll get back to you. Ask him a question. That question actually turns into treatment as we go back and forth. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just solved my problem. I don't even have to leave work. Or if you're at work, just do a virtual visit with your doctor. And it's the doctor that you physically see. And so, you know, for us, we're not trying to make this, we're actually trying to make this less obtrusive in your life, way more convenient and way more like how you access those critical services in your life today, like your bank or like an accountant or, you know, anybody else you talk to on a regular basis. Yep. So, so essentially, I mean, whether it's via an app or, or, you know, whatever technology you guys are using, like yep. they, they can make a phone call, they can text with their doctor, they don't have to go into the office. So, and I would imagine it's vice versa, right? Your care team has the ability to email, text, 100%. make a phone call. Absolutely. And think about it, you know, doctor's time, when you call the doctor's office, you always get the nurse, you're never talking to the doctor because their time's so precious. And when you get the doctor, the worst thing is like getting the doctor missed call. You're like, oh my gosh, it was so hard to try to get that doctor. But, but now we're at this level where messaging and calling your doctor is just a part of it. Again, I would also say, Michael, crossover doesn't work in a production environment, right? So our doctors aren't seeing 30 people a day. I think we average maybe 12 to 15 patient visits a day. So we're half of that, right? We have more flexibility to solve the problem. And some will say, well, hey, you know, you're not as efficient as the person seeing 30, well, I, I push back on that and say, well, the person that's seeing 30 patients a day, how many problems do they actually solve versus yeah. they just took their toll from the healthcare cost equation and didn't solve anything? Every single day in those 15 visits, I am trying to solve that problem. I'm trying to like extinguish the fire, not, not just put gasoline on. And that's, that's what this practice model allows us to do. It gives me a minute to text the patient, make sure they're doing okay so it, something doesn't become bigger than it needs to be. When you guys initially launched, right, it was initially with, you know, on-site clinics and then kind of, you know, evolved into near-site clinics for, you know, some of the large jumbo employers yep. that you're working with. You mentioned this in 2019, you guys acquired Sherpa and I, I have interviewed Jay on the uh, podcast and I was a Sherpa, you know, client for, yep. for a while. And it was a great experience, great member experience. So tell me why the acquisition and, and how has it helped move you forward in terms of your ability to... Uh, broaden the scope of who you can serve? Great, great question. Uh, So let's go back to the triple aim, right? We win the triple aim by building trusted relationships with members. Our care from onsite to nearsite has always been about the patient relationship. Mm -hmm. So that has been foundational for us to be successful. We have to have relationships with patients. So there's lots of different telemedicine solutions out there. And and Jay Parkinson, I think, is, is probably one of the greatest physician entrepreneurs that's out there. Super creative guy, good doctor, great person. What he had built was not a transactional service, but was actually a virtual primary care service where you could connect back to the same doctor every single time. And for us, we're like, man, that is exactly in line. It's basically crossover without the bricks and mortar. To us, it was just such a natural transition. We had that, we had the same mindset on patient care, on the continuity, on trying to solve the problem. Uh, and trying to do it as efficiently as possible. And so we've known Jay for quite a while. Scott and, and Jay were buds back in 
2005, 2006. I've known him since probably 2007. So, so we've known each other for, you know, 15 years and it just seemed like a, a, a great marriage. And, and so what we, what we brought in, in addition to a bunch of doctors that they employed who are fabulous, we actually brought in a lot of that learning and experience that, that Jay had been developing over the 10 years that he had been, that he had founded Sherpa. You know, I imagine that by acquiring his platform, it allows you to create really a whole new offering, right? As far as virtual primary care goes versus the, the, the brick and mortar and on-site clinic portion of the business. 100%. So, so really, we were a, a big company. We were serving employers, you know, national employers, but we were just serving them regionally. And, and they loved the care model. And they wanted to see, hey, how can you affordably, without building clinics in every part of the country, take this virtual primary health model to the rest of the country? And so, you know, with that, that relationship-based virtual model, and a lot of the things that Jay had pioneered around episodes and, and um, managing you know, the problem to solve is an episode. You got to resolve that episode, right? You don't want it to just linger on and, and become bigger. And so with that platform, that concept around managing people's healthcare in these episodes, we were able to expand from virtual primary care to PT, MSK, behavioral health, health coaching, and then care navigation. And so in, in April, just after the pandemic, we launched our national virtual primary care program. Again, we still, we're pretty different, I think. We still operate from a panel perspective. So it's still core to the, the, the true uh, physical model where you connect with a panel and that's your panel all the time. You can certainly change your panel. Like if you don't like your doctor or, or, or uh, align with somebody different, um, that doesn't really ever happen, but, but you can change your panel, but you get assigned to your panel and that's your care team every single time. And you connect with them and the mental health specialist knows who you are, the primary care doctor. And it's so easy. And they, that panel, that, that care team works in an integrated model. So they're working together on you and the rest of the panel that they're managing. So we, we broke up. We have four regions in the country, West, Central, East, and Northeast. Mm -hmm. And so we're licensed in all of those states. We have multiple care teams in each of those regions. We've been able to grow dramatically, but still maintain our core care delivery model of this primary care, comprehensive, integrated focus. This feels like a good time to, to pause and ask the question, how did COVID impact utilization, you know, across that platform? Yeah. Well, you know, COVID, uh, I don't think the country was very well prepared for, for COVID. I think we caught, got caught pretty flat footed. And, um, but, you know, in those hard moments, I would say I felt really uh, inspired um, there's lots of things to go back and say, hey, 2020 hindsight, we could have done better kind of as a country. But uh, there's also lots of heroic things and breakthroughs that happened. And I think one of the breakthroughs, not just with us, but I was really encouraged by primary care doctors and, and, and others, specialists, how quickly they converted to virtual. Yes. And, um, and so just like everybody else, we had a virtual offering, but we just accelerated that. For us, we immediately assessed our clinics and, and started to shut those down, the, 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 the physical access points. We, we looked, every single region was different. We looked at it clinic by clinic to see how we could safely treat patients. The biggest asset that we had wasn't necessarily our physical structures at that point. It was our doctors and our care teams yes. because we could still operate uh, and serve patients remotely. And so we were concerned that, hey, look, we got to make sure that our, our doctors, nurses, mental health specialists stay healthy during this pandemic because 
if they go down, then our patients won't have access to any care. Yep. And so what we did is we immediately reached out to all of our patients. We made phone call after phone call. I mean, we're talking like nearly 100,000 members that we have, right? And so our care teams mobilized and reached out to every member. I remember in New York, because New York got hit hard, um, talking to some of our hosts, our nurse practitioners, our doctors, and they would tell me these stories of reaching out to the patients and they'd say, they thought, the patients thought they were isolated. You know, we didn't, this is like, March and April, you know, and it was really scary. And then all of a sudden they get a doctor calling them and it's not just any doctor, it's their doctor saying, Hey, how are you doing? And checking in on them, checking on their home, people in home. And it was so cool to hear them say, like, they felt like they were isolated and all of a sudden this access to care opened up to them. So that was kind of the, the, the first wave. And then it was making sure that, that we were doing everything possible to address and, and create access nationally. So, you know, as I said, we launched that, the, the national virtual utility to all of our members. Yep. The search in that was, was exciting. And then it started to, to actually decline. And I'm seeing that decline. I was talking to a, a big Buka, and I may have shared this with you, Michael. I was talking to a big Buka, and, and I was talking to them about the surge of telemedicine. And what they said they saw in their claims data was the surge actually didn't come from the big giant vendors as much as it came from the mobilizations of the brick and mortar practices, you know, offering virtual access. Yes. I thought that was really interesting that, that it was the local guys that are actually responsible for a lot of the volume based on what they saw in their claims data versus the big heavy vendors. And again, Michael, I think that relates back to relationship, right? Yes. Yes, it's, re- it's relationship. Look, my my best my best buddy from college is a primary care physician in North Carolina, and he and his wife adapted their practice overnight. And it just he was like, "Look, it's not that different. You're just making yeah. a phone call. You're still treating the patient. You're spending time with them." And you know, he he told me the hardest thing was not switching over to virtual care. He said the hardest thing was being able to get reimbursed by the Bucas for it. Yeah, there was, there was a delay in that and there was a lot of concern. And I, I give a lot of kudos to your best buddy, primary care doctor, because he probably wasn't getting reimbursed for a lot of the work that he was doing, no. but he was just doing it. And that, to be honest, I hear that happen all the time at the primary care level. You know, it's like patients can't pay. They're not turning them away. They're, no. they're, they're in it for the right reasons. And again, I think that's another, you know, not to say that, that other physicians and specialists don't do it for the right reasons. There's, they, they all do, but I think you see a lot of that um, service orientation in the primary care profession. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Un, unsung heroes to, to a large degree. So look, I can see crossover health as a play for an employer, you know, to improve quality of care to their members, to, to provide a better, you know, experience, really a, a wellness and, and population health risk management strategy. But with that said, you know, employers, whenever they're evaluating something new, right, they're always going to know, okay, what's the cost and what's the benefit, right? So, you know, have you guys done, I would imagine you have for some of your large clients, you know, an analysis about what is the impact and and how are you, to what degree are you reducing, you know, downstream costs? So any, any statistics or numbers you can share with the audience? Yeah, we've done uh, lots of different studies on this, and I'll give you kind of a high level of how the economics work out, and then I'll give you, I'll actually quote some numbers for you. So in general, you're investing in this strategy to save on the downstream costs, right? Primary care, if you look at your spend in primary care, it's going to be sheepishly low. It, it just, it's non-existent. And so any in, any 
effort in primary care is going to look like a big increase in your spend. What you're increasing is the 5%. So you might increase the primary care spend 5% to 10%. You're like, oh, I just doubled my primary care spend, but it's still peanuts in the grand scheme of your total medical spend. And so the the goal here, and, and, and Michael, we've talked about this, we just went self-funded, right? A lot of times for employers, there's not a lot of choice because you get you know, pushed down. I know you spend a lot of time working on these outside the box strategies with your clients, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes there's a lot of gravity that just pulls you towards this PPO plan or an HSA plan. And when you create those plans, you create these big, huge networks that everybody thinks is great healthcare. I got the best healthcare. I got the best PPO, but it actually doesn't, doesn't really mean you're getting great care. There's a bunch of doctors in there that deliver great care. The key thing is how do you get somebody on the inside of that network to start driving to the best care? And and that's really where primary care comes into it. Primary care should be the greatest advocate for the employer to help provide leverage to the employer to get their members to the best doctors, right? Without some kind of quarterback inside the medical network, you have no control about where your members go. And, and in the fee-for-service world, I know, Michael, as a, as, as a medical group, we can submit claims to insurance companies, and it's a cat and mouse game. I can bill whatever I want, and I'm, I certainly I might be um, denied on some of them, but it, I'm still going to get to the number I need to get to. And that's what doctors have realized. It's that cat and mouse game. It creates no value for anybody. Yep, and yep. so primary care needs to be that leverage point. And so for large employers the investment here is to create a leverage point to steer people to the right doctors once they go to specialists. And if they do that, that's where the savings happen. So let me quote, we did a propensity matched analysis, which means we took two exact cohorts. One cohort was a group of people that used crossover and the other people did not use crossover, but they're the same risk profile, the same age, the same gender mix, the same geographic area, the same plan design. And so we matched everything else except for, did you go to crossover or did you not go to crossover? And when we looked at that study, we saw a total cost of care impact of 30%, okay? So that is massive. And when you actually filter in our cost, it dropped down to 15%. But when you think about total, if you reduce your total cost of care for a a group of members by 15%, that's not happening, right? Right. No. And those numbers are impressive. If you just kept it even, I think employers would be like, oh my gosh, you guys are miracle workers. But to reduce it by a net of 15% it is incredible. And we did that by, by taking primary care from a proverbial 5% spend, doubling it to a 10% spend. And again, it's the lowest cost spend. And then through that, we, we don't refer out as much in terms of specialty. Yep. Our ER is lower, inpatient's lower. Imaging is like the easiest layup. You've talked about this before. Oh, gosh. Colonoscopies and imaging and diagnostic. That is just a racket in terms of the variability. They're all the same things, all right. the same things. There should be no variability in those, those, those costs, right? And so when, when you start to have that primary care entity in place that can quarterback to the right locations for these, especially the diagnostic procedures, that's where you're going to see the savings. And so those are the numbers that we produce. We've actually started to design this into the benefit plan, which we've talked a little bit about, Michael, where instead of just offering crossover to all of your employees, actually create a plan design and let your employees select crossover. 
you know, that's what we did at Crossover um, to be able to really dial in the savings and those that were using Crossover. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I do think it's all about relationship. And we've, we've interviewed, I mean, uh, navigation uh, companies on this podcast before, Accolade, Quantum are two examples. And, and one of their key strategies is building that trust and that relationship, right? So that they can better effectively steer people, you know, to more cost-effective, you know, options. And so I think that that applies universally. You know, the fact that you guys have it in your business model part of our value proposition is we're not just going to refer willy nilly into a network that has extraordinary price and quality variation. Right. 100% Michael. If you just, if you just think about it as a, as a person, right. And if you trust your doctor and that's the goal, right. Whether it's crossover health or some doctor there's, I mean, we don't own um, the license on only having the primary care doctors, the good ones that work for us, tons of them, your buddy in North Carolina, but the goal is if you, if, as a person, if you trust your doctor, you're going to trust all of the recommendations because you know that they're trying to serve you. And so, you know, that trust is so critical and you're going to do whatever they say. Right. And uh, you might do some research related to it, but if you trust them, you're going to, you're going to follow the recommendations. And, 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 you know, to the employers that may be listening, if, if you have services where trust isn't part of it and they can't demonstrate that trust, it's going to be hard. They may have a great value prop, but they, they may not be able to, to drive the engagement to, to apply their value prop. And, you know, I like the accolade and the quantum approach because they come at it from a service or concierge perspective of building the trust to be able to impact the care. Let's talk a little bit about fee structure and how this looks for an employee. So I understand that, you know, you guys can actually bill in a number of different ways, you know, could be a, a capitated, you know, per participant per month. And I think we've also talked about, you know, looking at, at different methodologies like a, you know, primary care encounter bundle. Do you want to comment a little bit about that? Yeah. And then how is this being offered to employees? Is it, is it, uh, is there a copay associated with it or is it all $0 cost? We price our model in a variety of different ways. For the big on-sites that are super custom, we'll do a cost plus model. That seems to be the most efficient for the big employers because you know they, they may want custom things or minimalist things. And so just putting all the costs together and, and yep. pricing it that way seems the most effective. We also do PEPMs. PEPM, all of these pricing models have pros and cons to them, right? Yes. Uh, PEPMs can be really efficient. Um, but they can also be misaligned in terms of the use. And so um, you have to kind of stare at each of the, each of the models. We also do kind of what you were talking about, a kind of bundled approach for some of our service. And we bill it directly through the medical plan. Now I'll tell you, I hate fee for service. Uh, there's probably a few people on the planet hate fee for service more than me. No, um, I, I, I hate it a lot too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, I think that this is why we have kindred spirits, but, but we're just, just opposed to it because it creates an environment to drive more transactions. If you know you get paid every time you do this procedure, whether it is is it creates a good outcome or not, you're doing that procedure and you can calculate it. That doesn't that doesn't create better healthcare. Yeah. So what we did is we created a bundle. We said, look, we don't want to play the cat and mouse game with um, uh, trying to figure out how many codes I can build to make the most money. So we just said, look. A primary care uh, encounter bundle is this much money. I'll just bill it through the insurance and the insurance can pay me back 
um, for that bundle every single time. That keeps our doctors not focusing on, okay, did I do enough procedures today or not enough <laughs> procedures, enough visits? It allows right. us to stay core to our model of delivering care. Now, we also, Michael, I talked to you about this before, in addition to sending, submitting those bundles, we want to be careful of ourselves. Of like, okay, well, if I just submit twice as many bundles, I'm going to make twice as much money. We also apply a value-based cap to those bundles to take away the incentive of just overbilling. And that really allows, allows us to focus on treating those members. Now, in our value-based financial cap, that doesn't mean that once they've reached that cap, we cut off services to the member. We don't have service limitations to any of our members. So, you know, whether they use one time and or build a bundle or they use 20 times, we do not cap that. We do set a value-based cap for the employers so that they know, hey, look, Crossover is kind of going at risk with me and they're putting their money where their mouth is in this value-based equation. And that seems to work well. And we do do, we do, do caps. We, we, we do a capitated rate and that allows us to, to manage under that um, at the capitated amount, which I actually think makes a lot of sense. And I'm starting to see more of those financial arrangements come to life. I think the fact that you guys are flexible in the compensation arrangements is good. I think as a, as a former underwriter and somebody who works closely with underwriters for doing claims forecasts, you know, sometimes adding a capitated or PEPM figure can be challenging just from the standpoint of you don't know how much utilization you're going to get. But if you do have the utilization statistics, it is easier to do, you know, just a straight, you know, capitated amount. So I, I, I think, I think it's good to have that flexibility and, and give the employer the choice of kind of how they want to tackle it. Yeah. And, and, and Michael, to your underwriting experience, I think caps make sense once you are aligning it to a benefit plan design so that you make sure that, that, you know, Hey, look, I've designed this benefit. I built the cap into the benefit plan design. And so, you know, kind of like you're steering the member to that primary care provider. So you get the value. You know, I think sometimes in the PPMs, we do a tiered PPM, which increases with utilization so that it starts really low when the utilization is low and then increases as utilization gets higher. Oh, so that's kind of, I like that too. I, I think, I, I think that's a great model too. And here's the difference that I would say, what I like about a capitated model with you guys is there's accountability and data that comes with it. What I don't like about capitation in the current California HMO marketplace is there's no data that comes back to the employer and there's no accountability. So you don't know if that medical group is making money hand over fist for you. You don't know if they're managing, you know, the care of your members. You don't know anything. It's a black box. Yeah, we submit all the claims and this kind of goes to the patient side, right? So for an employer that sets a crossover up, you know, what's the cost to the member? Well, we just follow the benefit plan design. So we love, Michael, the $0 copay for crossover services. And that's really kind of where it breaks that's how, that's away. How, that's how it should be. That's how it's it should how, be. And that's where, and I don't have a problem with this. That's where it breaks away from the HSA plans, you know, because we have to charge a yep. fair market <clears throat> value price with the HSAs. And so we try to set that at the Medicare level. So it's, uh, it's acceptable, but, but really what we do, and we did that in our own benefit plan design, which 70% of our members enrolled in are, are our own employees, but we're not setting the, 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 the access to crossover at $0. This is not like a free benefit. I'm not trying to be like, like an employer that's giving you a perk. Hey, it's free. It's free. We, we know that primary care is the most important access point to give us leverage to drive the most value. And so when we set the copay at $0 to access 
crossovers, primary care, mental health, and, and such. It's because we want the engagement at the most appropriate value-based level rather than charging them something and maybe discouraging right. them from coming in and getting care. Two more questions I want to ask. One is patient experience. How are you tracking that and, and what, what numbers do you have that you know sort of validate the patient experience? So I think a couple of things. We have a great NPS north of 90. Um, north of 90. North of 90. And I mean, that's, we're talking millions of, of visits, right? That's pretty and impressive. We, we really we really strive for that. It varies in a couple of locations, but I don't think we have a, a location that's that's lower than than 70. And when you when you're when you're at 90, I mean it is phenomenal. It's you, for people who know MPS, it's so hard because you only get points if somebody rates you a 10 or a nine. Uh, sevens and eights don't count for anything. And then everything else is a detractor. So it's a, right. a hard metric. So the things that we really care about from a patient experience level are number one, access to care. How quickly can our members get access to any type of care, mental health, MSK, primary care. So we look at wait times in terms of being able to schedule is it next day, how many days until they can get an appointment. And we're talking like, we're looking at this in like two days, three day increments, right? So access to care is critical. And, and usually there's always an appointment same day. Number two is we look at when they come in, what is their wait time to actually be seen? And we have, we're, we're kind of well known for having our, our super small waiting rooms. We have few chairs. And the design of that is like, we want nobody waiting. We try to get them in with their physician. We clock that, we measure that. 95% of our patients are in the provider's room in less than five minutes. We don't hand you the big clipboard that you, you complete every single time. You do that before, we keep that, we, it's all electronic. And so we measure that. And then of course we measure um, satisfaction um, once you leave our appointment. Did you trust the provider? Were you confident in the quality of the care? Do you understand your treatment plan? These are important things for help us to understand if we're delivering good care. I will say one other thing is that when our care navigators refer out and we schedule that appointment, we survey our doctor who did the referral and our patient who went to the specialist about the experience at the specialist because we want to know about the specialist too to make sure that they're having our patients are having a good experience with that specialist. And so we know whether to keep referring or look for a new specialist. If there was one question I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Oh gosh. Um, let's see how, how, uh, how quickly can we start? Um, you know, for those employers that are out there, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're yes. able to ramp up pretty quickly. I, I think that, you know, if I'm going to close out with something, I, I just, I really encourage employers to think about, you know, taking a step back from all the different strategy and what is working where do, where do my patients have trust? Do I have solutions in place where trust is paramount and I'm getting that value? And, you know, I think, I think Michael, uh, there's some great consultants. I think you're one of those guys that can think outside the box on those strategies to help people build the right plan design that has meaningful results that where, where patients can engage in something where, where they feel trusted and um, they feel like uh, trust exchange. And so uh, you know, I encourage employers and, uh, and others that if we're going to fix this healthcare problem, we really got to focus on foundational care where trust is paramount and we can deliver those quality results and then the numbers will follow. And, and that's what we've been experiencing at, at uh, Crossover. And certainly that's the mission that we're on. Awesome. Well, look, this has been super fun. Appreciate uh, the conversation and, and what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, this has been insightful for our listeners. Great. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the time. 
You bet. And to our listeners, um, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Crossover Health's website and contact information. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast.